we jump from one gravestone to another just to hide. I made it over the wall. I jumped into the dead zone between the two walls. The only threat we felt was, of course, the guards. This is not what you think. I'm Sasha Rosen. When Lars Roots was growing up in Germany in the 80s, he watched West German TV. He was into the counterculture and he listened to the BBC on the radio at night. But he was also living in East Germany before the end of the Cold War, which was a communist police state famous for its ever-present spy agency, the Stasi. Lars, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure to be here. There was an East Berlin, there was a West Berlin, there was an East Germany, there was a West Germany. How did that work? After the war in 1949, the southern part of East Germany was occupied by the Americans, by the American army. And Berlin was occupied by the Russians in 1945. And then these countries made a deal because this was already part of the Cold War in the early 50s where the Americans wanted to keep one part of Berlin as a zone to maintain also control and power. So the Americans and the Russians, they made a deal and they traded the southern part of former East Germany with Thuringia and Saxonia with one part of Berlin, which became West Berlin. And this is more or less how things stayed until you were growing up. They built a wall between the two halves of the city and you grew up in a divided Germany and a divided Berlin. Yes, I grew up in a divided country and I was made very much aware by my parents because my parents were also opposing the communist system. They had rather privileged professions. My stepfather was a GP in a small country town. He didn't need to join the communist party. And we had also relatives in West Germany. So we kept in contact with them. They visited us. We also were able to watch West German TV, where we received also news which were completely the opposite what we received from the East. When I was in the school, of course, I became also aware about the contradiction between both systems. And I started also to question the ideology in East Germany, which were taught in the school. So it was an ideological conflict at a very early age. Because on one hand, my parents told me, don't always believe what the teachers tell you because they're very much conformative with the communist system. So I started also to become very suspicious. I was not allowed to study in East Germany. Only three of my schoolmates were allowed to go to higher education because their parents were party members. And your parents weren't? No. When I was 18 years old, and I decided to leave this very cozy little country village, I discovered there's an incredible counterculture in East Berlin, and especially in the suburb Prenzlauer Berg, which is perhaps comparable with inner city suburbs here in Sydney, like Paddington or Surrey Hills. And this suburb was occupied by young radicals, young musicians, artists, And many of the apartments were abandoned by the state authorities. I was living in Berlin, I was squatting. It was an amazing adventure playground for us because we went into these houses and found all these unoccupied apartments. And these houses had usually five stories, two to three courtyards. And some of these apartments had still the interior of the 1930s and 40s. Later we found out that some of these houses were occupied also by informers for the Stasi. When I moved to Berlin, I knew I was watched. They checked who is moving in, especially those young little punks and long hair hippies. How did a system like that work? The Stasi, the Staatssicherheit, they call us a state security system. 
It was a very powerful organization in East Germany to maintain control. And in order to do this, the Stasi employed many, many informers, domestic spies, but also many, many people, ordinary citizens, to inform on anything which could threaten the communist system. In 1989, it came out when the Stasi files were opened that 91,000 full-time domestic spies were employed in the Stasi between 1980s and 1990s and 200,000 unofficial informers. Effectively, everyone was being spied on. Yes. 2.5% of the total population was monitored by the Stasi. They had so many informal spies who acted in businesses, in factories. They were living amongst us in houses, in shared houses. They even informed also within families. And one of the very sad stories after the fall of the wall was that one of the very famous dissidents, she was even spied out by her own husband for many, many years. They used also dogs to smell and to identify suspicious people, to find out where they have been, what they have done. They even kept also the smell samples in little glasses. They had also a library of smells. Why would they have that? So they could identify with names on it. Because we all have different smells. So, uh, so they'd grab your underwear off the line and put it in a little jar and that would be... Yeah, this is one way. The surveillance system was also to check mail which went from west to east. So anything which they found could be suspicious, any mail, any parcels, were opened and checked and sometimes they disappeared. What did it feel like growing up in a system like that? Did you know that you're always being watched? Because I was 18 years old, I felt invincible. I was attending peace meetings and peace demonstrations. And one was in 1983, where we went down to the Friedrichstraße, where the American embassy was in East Berlin. And we lit candles and demonstrate also for peace. We knew that we were spied out because sometimes the Stasi turned up and asked us questions and we just used excuses and we didn't really answer. And then they left. They knew that we are living there. But when they turned up, we knew we had to move on to the next squad. So you felt like you'd be okay? I was not the only one. Because it's also this kind of group thinking. But at the same time, we also wanted to provoke. We wanted to stand up against the system. And we also wanted to go to West, of course. I think for us in December in 1986, it was time to leave before the Stasi came in and took us away. So we started to feel a bit more proactive and thought, okay, that's, that's it now. We don't want to wait any longer. I had this plan for many years, even when I was 18 years old, because I didn't see any future for myself to live in East Germany under very restrictive and controlled conditions. And I was also, in Australia, you would call us uh, at itchy feet. I wanted to see the world, also to travel and to choose what I wanted to do in my life. And I didn't want to be dictated by a government. It was in winter. I still remember it was in December. And for those who have been to Germany or to Berlin, the winters and the autumns can be very long and cold and dark. And it affects also your mood. And because these winters sometimes take five, six months and without seeing any sun, 
But living in East Berlin was even more depressive because everything was dark and grey and we didn't have much money, we didn't see any hope at the time. And the wall was only a few meters away from where we lived. How old were you when you tried to cross the wall? I was 24 years old. How did you try to escape? Me and my two friends, we went into a discotheque first and we had a few drinks and had lots of fun. We knew that in this night, in December, that we were attempting to jump the wall. We talked about this briefly and we also made a plan. We went into my squad. We picked up a few clothes because it was a very cold winter. It was minus 20 degrees. And then we called a taxi. It was a black taxi, just someone who turned up. We gave them money and said, just drive us up to north of the town. In the West German territory, outside of Berlin, there are dog zones. But not between East and West Berlin. So it was, for us, a better opportunity to make it. And there were also no self-shooting equipment, because on the so-called green border, there were guns which responded to any movement. So they obviously could kill people. And we knew that there were no dogs and no guns there. The only threat we felt was... Of course, the guards. There was a graveyard in front of the wall near Pankow. And it was dark, it was foggy. We made it to the first wall. We jumped from one gravestone to another just to hide because there were spotlights also on the eastern side. First wall is 4 meter 20 high. So we helped each other and it was quite hard to get up to four meters. This is the wall on the East German side? On the East German side, yes. So I made it over the wall and I jumped into the dead zone, the zone between the two walls. And there were spotlights everywhere, but it was still very foggy, so the view was not very good from the towers. They couldn't see us very well. And then I was a fence, which was a signal fence. So I started to climb through the fence to reach the next wall. So while I was trying to climb under the fence, two guards were running towards me and my friend. They held the Kalashnikov and they were ready to shoot. And I noticed later they were the same age, they were probably in the early 20s, and they were shaking. And I was shaking as well, very much. So they held the gun on our heads and we had to lay down, face down on the ground in the snow. And I still remember I was freezing and we had to lay down minus 20 degrees in the snow and not move in any way, otherwise we would have been shot. And I've still felt the cold gun on my head. And then after 20 minutes, which was endless for us, and I was freezing, we were scared of each other. But they were also scared that we had any poison capsules in our mouth because we could have committed suicide. I had gum in my mouth, so he said, spit it out, spit it out, so I did. I didn't feel much. I felt scared, but I never really thought that they would shoot me. You know, it's strange when you're in this very dangerous situation. I didn't really think much about it. I was scared, but I also believed that they wouldn't shoot me because I was unarmed. But later I found out guards who caught SKPs, they also received honors and even extra holidays. And then after 20 minutes, a small Trabi, which is a small East German car, turned up and we had to get into this car and then they blindfolded us. We had to sit at the back of the car. The front seat was turned around and one of the soldiers of the guards, he held his gun towards us. Me and my friend, we were sitting at the back, blindfolded, 
and were driven out from this wall zone. What did you expect to happen to you? I expected that I will go into prison now. Party is over. That was my first thought. And I felt very sad because I also felt that I'm now leaving my friends behind and my girlfriends at the time and my parents. So no one knew also what was happening for the first two months. My mother had no idea where I was. She thought I was shot dead. It was very sad. Did you go to prison? Yes. They drove us straight to the main quarter, which was the main jail in the center of East Berlin. We were interrogated for 12 hours and then sent to a prison where I spent the first few months until the trial started. I expected to be in prison for a long time and I was sentenced to one and a half years for illegally attempting to leave the country and jump the wall. When I was in the prison, and I was in several prisons, but in the last prison, I remember one night, and it was the most important night for me, a prison guard approached me, and I was together in one cell with 20 other people. And we were, 10 of my fellow prisoners were political prisoners who also wanted to leave the country. The other 10 were criminals. On this particular evening, one prison guard approached me and said, you need to pack your bags. Tomorrow, a truck is waiting for you. I thought I will now be transferred to another prison to spend my next few months. Next morning, I jumped into a truck. I didn't have any windows, the truck. So I stayed in this truck for hours. And then all of a sudden, the truck stopped. And I remember the door opened of the truck. And on the left and the right side were prison guards standing. One of them told me, don't look to the right and don't look to the left. Just go through this tunnel and then they will be greeted by another official. This is what I did. Once when the official told me that I'm here now in the Karl-Marx-Stadt prison, this was the prison where the prisoners usually spend a week or so before then they were transferred to the West. There was a glimpse of hope, but I was very suspicious at the time because I heard also stories where Prisoners were sent to this particular jail, but then sent back. And I kept the letters which were written to me by my mother and my friends. I had my civilian clothes on, so I had them all in my underwear because I wanted to keep them as an evidence. I entered the bus a few days later. These buses came from West. They were hired by the Stasi. And they had East German number plates on. They parked in the courtyard of the prison. And they were waiting for many other prisoners. I was not the only one. There were two buses at the time. I was asked to enter these buses, sit down and not to say anything. This is what I did. And there was a couple behind me. They were overly excited. And I found out later that they were reunified after many, many years being separated and living in different jails. So this is the first time at the time when I was sitting in front of them, I was listening to them and, and they couldn't believe that they were sitting together in a bus after many years spending time in a jail. You know, they were over the moon. And they said, we're now going to the West. The gates opened and the buses drove out. This was the first time that I have seen other people than prisoners for many months. And I looked out of the window and I knew we are driving now towards the West. How did you feel? I felt nervous and we were driving out and I knew the direction. And I knew also we are now on the Autobahn and we're now driving south and not north or east. After a few hours, just before the border, the two buses stopped. The Stasi officials, which were in the bus with us, 
they left the bus and then the buses started to continue their journey. And then I could only see that the border was just opened and all the car traffic, all the border traffic was stopped. And we were escorted by West German cars then. So we were driven with fast speed through the border area and all these fences opened everywhere. Once when we reached the western part, the buses stopped again and a West German official came in and said, you are now in West Germany, you are now free. And uh, I'm still getting goosebumps when I talk about this. And then we started to scream and, 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 and to cry and we were happy to be now on the other side, on the safe side. And then they started to give us fruits and Coca-Cola, the symbol of the West, because you couldn't buy any Coca-Cola in East Germany. I was surprised that I was released after nearly six months. And the reasons why I was released earlier than I expected was that my mother put a lot of pressure on the lawyer to bring up my case, bring attention also to the East German authorities. My friends and my family knew that I wanted to leave the country. She was devastated and she got in contact with a lawyer, which was a very famous lawyer who also arranged the exchange of spies between the Americans and the Russians. His name was Vogel. And for those who have watched the movie Bridge of Spies recently in the cinemas, the young lawyer in the movie, he was my lawyer as well. At the same time, a friend who was living in West Berlin was also engaging a lawyer in West Berlin. So from both sides, I put pressure on and this obviously helped. And I had also had a trade which was much needed in West Germany. I was a mechanic. So West Germany wanted you because you had this qualification as a mechanic. Yes. West German government was interested in young, motivated professionals people with qualifications because they didn't need to spend any money for their qualifications. Why, why, how does this work? I thought that these two countries were meant to be enemies. At the time, East Germany struggled, the economy struggled. They had problems, they were scarce in all areas of food and fruits, and even also mechanical equipment, machinery. So East Germany had great difficulties in maintaining standard of living. So they decided to increase the prisoner trade because the West German government paid large sums for prisoners. So for West Germany, they wanted to help people escape from the East, but they were also increasing their industrial capacity. For East Germany, it was almost like they were having ransoms paid. They paid ransoms, yeah. But West German government, they had also a moral duty because they saw East Germany and West Germany as one country, and especially the political conservative parties at the time. They believed that Germany must be reunified and people and families need to get together. So you, a young man who was too left for the communist East, was rescued by an initiative run by conservative, more right-wing German politicians. Yes. Because no one from the East German population was aware that their prisoner exchange is happening. So East German and West German authorities, they made a deal that the West German government is supplying these buses because no one in the population should be suspicious if there's a bus, even a West German model, with an East German number plate. So that was a way to camouflage the prisoner exchange and trade. Then we drove further, we drove to Gießen, which was the refugee camp. And we spent the first few days sitting with authorities, with West German authorities, with BND, which is the West German Secret Service. We spent time with the American Secret Service, with the British. We also spent time where we talked about our story, our experiences being in the jail. So they wanted to know also who the prison guards were, how they treated us. 
And I was very, very willing to talk about these experiences. And then after a few days, church groups and charity organizations invited us. They gave us clothes and cosmetics. We were treated very well. We also received a special passport. It was a refugee identification card. We spent the first few weeks in this refugee camp, and then we were asked where we want to live. Some of the people decided to leave Germany forever, to emigrate to America or to Canada. But it was out of my question. I wanted to go back to Berlin, but to the other side, to West Berlin. So you lived in West Berlin? I lived in West Berlin. I established myself professionally. I started to study also. I went to the university. And then I moved back because the wall was open, of course, in the meantime, after 1989. The Berlin Wall was opened. East and West Germany were reunited. And the Stasi stopped being a thing. I moved back to the Prenzlauer Berg. Prenzlauer Berg changed incredibly fast, become very gentrified. But I lived in a very spacious three-bedroom apartment right in the center of Prenzlauer Berg, where I used to squat. So now I became a professional. I started to work in museums. I worked in the art sector. I loved it. And then I decided to use an opportunity to move somewhere else. So I approached a museum in Australia, in Darwin and ask them if they would take me as a professional volunteer to spend a few months and to work there. And they said, yes, please come. And so I jumped into the plane and I found it very exotic, especially living and working in Darwin, very tropical. The arts people there were kind of community. I loved this. And it reminded me also a little bit on the separation and the isolation in East Germany, where we're completely disconnected from the rest of the world. So you develop a sort of community feel. And I loved it. I loved it so much that I fell in love with my supervisor. She's an archaeologist. At the time, she was responsible for the indigenous collection in the museum. We get together, and then I had to leave. I was supposed to fly back to Germany. This was the 11th of September 2001, which changed the world. And when I went to the airport in Darwin in the middle of the night, I was told I cannot fly anymore because the airports in Bali are shot and I cannot leave the country because my passport was also not valid anymore. It was only valid for six months, so they didn't allow me to leave. So I spent the next few weeks in Darwin with complete uncertainty. But it also cemented my very young and fresh relationship with my new girlfriend. And then a few months later, she arrived in Berlin. She then worked in the museum where I worked at the time. And then in 2003, we made a decision that I leave my fantastic job in the museum in Berlin and move into the unknown of Australia. And you've been living here ever since? I've been living here ever since. I suppose the last part of this story is that in 1992, they passed a law opening up the archives of the Stasi. The Berlin Wall opened in 1989, Germany reunified in 1991, and eventually you decided to go back and look at the files the Stasi kept on you. Yes, I thought, because I knew I had a file, I knew I had a file, but I also wanted to be ready for it because I expected that I would see something in my file which I probably wouldn't like. I had a very large friendship with many, many young people who were in a similar situation. And I suspected at the time that some of them perhaps could have been a spy. And with many of them also, I still remained in contact through the years in the 90s and even through 2000. I didn't want it to affect our friendship, but I also wanted to be mentally ready to read some of the incidents, even when I was in West. I knew I was monitored and my telephone connection in West Germany, in West Berlin, 
was also adapted. So what did you expect to find in these files? I expected betrayal, but I also expected that someone is keeping a diary about my life in East and even in the West. What did you actually find? I found uh, letters which I've written and which were also addressed to me from friends, from family. But I also found photos of me when I was in East, near the wall. In East Berlin, I found photos of me demonstrating in front of the Checkpoint Charlie. Did you find the betrayal you were expecting? Many of the names were taken out, so there were black markers on it. So I couldn't really see, but I have a suspicion in one of the files that one particular person, which I'm not in contact anymore, he was an informer and he spied us out and he also betrayed us. And I still find him on Facebook and he's now living a very ordinary life in Berlin. But what I could see on Facebook is that no one of my friends is his Facebook friend anymore. I must admit also I expected a more emotional response. But after so many years, I developed a thick skin, but I also have moved on mentally in my life. There was a case where there was an attack done near the Brandenburg Gate. Someone threw a Molotov cocktail to the wall and I was accused as a terrorist. I had nothing to do with it. But it was a complete file about this incident. I guess this kind of highlights one of the limits of this sort of file. These sorts of files don't necessarily tell you what's actually going on. They create a story, but the story is told from the perspective of someone who doesn't know you, who is also your ideological enemy, the person who is doing his job and he's going into a very fine detail about your life. Without your permission, he's even going further also to report and to share this story about your very intimate life with others. And I didn't like this. Your career now is as an archivist, and you went back and looked at all of these files, some of them on yourself, and this amazing and horrible gargantuan system of files on people who were living in East Germany. What was it like as an archivist to see a system like that and to be in a system like that? I must say I've found it surprising how far the system was developed and how sophisticated the archival system was developed by the Stasi because they kept files of millions of their own citizens. So this registration system was highly sophisticated. They employed archivists who kept this file on their citizens. I found it highly sophisticated and quite admire the way how they kept the system, putting aside the nature of archive. That must be a complicated mixed feeling. Yeah, it is a very complicated mixed feeling. But in hindsight, of course, it was obviously very difficult to look at my file in the early 90s. But now, you know, in 2016, I find some of the stories which were written about me quite entertaining. On the other hand, also, I'm quite grateful that I can now read also my own file because I would have liked to keep diary about the time. The photos, I couldn't believe how I looked. And I'm also happy that many of the letters between my family and my friends when I was living in, in the East and West were copies. And so I kept them and treasured them also. But as an archivist, I'm interested not only about my own story, but I'm also interested about the story of others. And I'm also interested that this authority, which is looking after this file, there are many, many archivists who are putting the pieces together now. I'm very optimistic that this archive need to continue because it's very essential also for us to learn from the past. Do you think that people involved in that sort of system aren't responsible for being part of the system? 
It depends on, on many factors. I think a very important factor is also your family background and how you have been influenced by your own family, by your immediate environment, but also by your personality. Because of my background of my family, my family always made sure that I develop a degree of critical thinking where I ask questions. But in this very totalitarian system, this particular aspect was suppressed by the authorities. And it influenced also the educational system, the family environment. So you shouldn't ask questions about state authorities because what they decide is best for you also. So I never believed this. There's a moral duty for us and it's a lesson also for others Speak up if you don't believe in something, regardless of where it's coming from, whether from your parents or from the authorities. If you don't believe in it, then don't do it. Don't follow what they tell you. Always remain honest to yourself, because in the future, one day, you will be asked again, why did you do this and why did you do this? It was the circumstance of the time which brings people in very difficult situations. Some of them can resist to temptations and some of them perhaps are more vulnerable. Do the surveillance revelations of Edward Snowden have any connection with this story? I just read in the news a few months ago that Berlin has now erected a sculpture of Edward Snowden in one of the main places. And it tells you how I think about it. Lars, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure. Thanks to Cassie Findlay for accidentally suggesting Lars as a guest. If you like this episode and you want to hear more, we've got lots more. Go to fbiradio.com slash notwhatyouthink. Not What You Think is produced by Olivia Perry Griffiths and Lachlan Wiley. Show art by Annie Hamilton. Linda DeLacy is our production consultant. Executive producer is Samira. The show was created by Laura Briley, Claire Holland, and me. I'm Zasha Rosen. Next week, how to close every asylum in Italy. <laughs>